This is an ABC podcast. This is Baby Talk Podcast with Penny Johnston. Premature babies have a massive battle for survival outside their mother's womb. Without vital time to develop, their organs have to start functioning often before they're ready. While steroid treatment has been a lifesaver for helping babies' lungs develop in a hurry, there's no such cure for their tiny intestines, which leaves them susceptible to an often fatal disease called necrotizing enterocolitis. So in many babies, actually, we see that the gut does not cope very well, as in, for example, it's slow to digest the milk and the tummy gets bigger and we have to watch that very closely. In some babies, thankfully not very many, but unfortunately still quite a few, they get into deeper trouble and they get inflammation in the gut. Now, if that inflammation gets really severe, then it can culminate in this condition that's called necrotizing enterocolitis. Necrotizing, the the word itself means dying or dead, and enterocolitis is an inflammation of the intestine that is the gut. Melbourne researchers have published a breakthrough study that will start to accelerate new treatments for neck, which they know can trigger massive inflammation, often causing parts of their intestine to die, which again results in invasive surgery, which makes their survival even more fragile. And unfortunately, the fatality rates for neck have remained unchanged for all the past 50 years. Professor Marcel Nold and acting Professor Claudia Nold, they are actually married, have published a study which shows a potential new therapy. Well, it's really the first therapy for these babies. Dr. Marcel is a neonatologist at Monash Children's Hospital in Melbourne, and he and Claudia are both researchers at the Hudson Institute for Medical Research. Actually, They've been working on this research for seven years. And Claudia, I'm going to get you to explain your official title. I'm a group head at the Hudson Institute of, of Medical Research and yeah, with a focus on immunology. So the, yeah, the name of the lab is Interventional Immunology in, in Early Life Disease and Beyond because we're also looking, looking into adult disease because obviously it spans into adulthood and diseases of early life because it's always causing long-term side effects or consequences. And Marcel, your job with Hudson and Monash Health is? I have an appointment with the Hudson Institute as well. So I lead the lab together with Claudia at the Hudson. And then I have a scientific appointment at the Department of Pediatrics at Monash University. Again, our lab essentially is situated in both institutions, if you will. And my other life, my other half part-time is spent in clinical medicine at Monash Newborn, at Monash Children's Hospital in the neonatal intensive care unit or abbreviated NICU. That's where I spent my clinical time as a consultant physician there. Your day-to-day job, apart from the research, is actually dealing with those very premature, terribly fragile newborn babies. Yes, that's right. So that's my time in clinical medicine. And it's actually a real privilege to be where I am because this is the perfect place where I can make full use of my professorship for pediatric immunology in in the department at the Hudson and then take the real clinical questions from the ward to the lab and then hopefully one day also back again to make a real difference to um, my patients and their families' lives. 
Now, I hope you don't mind that I can point out that you two are married to each other. And what came first? Was did you did you meet whilst researching the same topic, or did you convince your wife to take this on as an immunologist? <laughs> That's a good question. Actually, she kind of swayed towards immunology, but I let her speak for herself. <laughs> so um, we met when we were both doing our doctoral degree at the University of Frankfurt, and the science kind of kept us in a, in a way together. Yeah, and then it ended up that we, the interest in, in research, that we continued working together. And uh, in the meantime, we got married and had children, so it's all in one, basically. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you for, for letting us share in that. To the very serious topic that you guys research, which one of you would like to explain what necrotizing enterocolitis actually is? Yeah, that's, uh, I can explain that. What I would normally say to my patients' families when this condition occurs in one of our babies, essentially, to give a bit of background, when babies are born prematurely, and premature babies are more, by far the largest group affected by this condition, then they are not just you know small adults. They are actually quite different in many, many ways. Most of their organs are still immature and, you know, it's quite a challenge for them to cope with doing and performing the tasks that they need to perform when the baby's actually not in mom's womb anymore. And the gut, of course, is one of these organs and the gut, like most other organs, is also very immature. And when the baby's still inside the womb, doesn't really have to do much because all the nutrition comes through mom's blood, through the placenta. But when a baby is born, we put in front of it this quite major challenge to actually do its job and process food and get the nutrition into the body of the baby and actually allow it to grow. This challenge, some babies, like with any other thing in medicine, some patients deal better with than others. In many babies, actually, we see that the gut does not cope very well, as in, for example, it's slow to digest the milk and the tummy gets bigger, and we have to watch that very closely. In some babies, thankfully not very many, but unfortunately still quite a few, they get into deeper trouble and they get inflammation in the gut. Now, if that inflammation gets really severe, then it can sort of culminate in this condition that's called necrotizing enterocolitis. Necrotizing, the, the word itself means dying or dead, and enterocolitis is an inflammation of the intestine that is the gut. So when neck, that's the short version for necrotizing enterocolitis, so when neck really does occur, then large proportions of the gut undergo severe inflammation and in the worst cases actually indeed die. And this is, uh, I mean, goes essentially without saying that that's, of course, a major problem for the body in its entirety, because when that barrier breaks down, then the bacteria can enter the peritoneal cavity, that means the inside of the tummy, and cause major inflammation that can lead to very severe consequences. And we have to use all registers that, uh, that we have available to us in newborn medicine to keep these babies alive. Because, of course, the science around 
premature babies has improved so much over the years and I know that you give say a steroid injection that sort of helps the newborn babies get their lungs to a level of maturity that can work. I'm assuming that their tiny guts must be a little bit harder to treat or to prepare for an early birth. Yeah, that's that's actually right. So the the injection of the steroids that you mentioned that it was indeed a major step forward. They are given to the mothers before birth, and indeed they help, especially the, the lungs, perform their job better when the babies are born. And the lung is one of the other major organs, or maybe the major organ that's affected by premature birth most profoundly. But yes, the gut sort of you know plays second fiddle there in that in the greater sense of uh, the greater scheme of things. But yes, when it goes wrong, then it can go really wrong indeed. And it's actually very true that it's hard to treat when neck is suspected in our patients, in in our babies, and we can't really do very much. We can only stop feeding and give antibiotics essentially and otherwise support them with, you know, the nutrition that they need into their little veins. What is the difference between a a premature baby's gut and a a term baby's gut? Is there any physical difference other than the fact that it's slightly more fragile? Well, that is a very good question. It's not entirely understood how the immaturity of the entire baby pans out in terms of molecular differences between term babies and preterm babies. But what's certain is is that, as I already briefly mentioned, the function of the premature gut is often a lot slower. So, and when I say function, I mean all, actually all different aspects of functions that the gut has to perform. So, for example, it has to digest the food to a level that it can then be absorbed and enter the bloodstream. So that's one of the major functions. But then also it has to propel the food forward, and that's called peristalsis. And that's also often a lot slower in the preterm babies. And then another aspect is that as any organ, the gut needs to be supplied with blood and the blood ideally would would be 100% saturated with oxygen and that's unfortunately also not always the case in the preterm babies because we are not at that level yet in supporting their breathing to achieve that all the time. Oh my goodness, they have such an uphill battle, these tiny babies that come too early. We've heard a lot and we've, we've done some interviews lately on baby talk talking about the infant gut microbiome and the bacteria that coexist with us to help digest certain foods is this something that you also investigate is the microbiome in in neck yeah so in our paper we looked at that a little bit it wasn't the main focus but we confirmed that in our preclinical models that we're using the microbiome is abnormal like it was observed in babies as well, as in there's less diversity of the bacterial species. In the future, actually in projects that we've just started and it will go over the next few years, we will look at that uh, much more closely, but actually not only at the gut, but also at the lung. So that will be actually a really exciting project that we'll then put together with our observations on immunology. Obviously, 
babies are one of the the toughest topics to explore as a scientist. I expect that preterm babies are even more difficult. I mean, tell me how you actually go about researching their guts and how do you manage it? So first, as a mother myself, I have to say that I think it's really important to enter this area of research. And as you have pointed already out, that over the last decades, it has improved massively. And this is also due to the fact that uh, there has been a massive advantage in the sensitivity of many assays because, you know, you can probably understand that the samples are very difficult to obtain and the volume is, is very small because obviously the, the children cannot give large amounts of blood as, for example, an adult would do or a normal child. And therefore, the field of research has had a huge boost by these multiple new techniques that are now at hand, and especially also the immunology or understanding the immune response in these children is, is really of importance because inflammation is sometimes the cause or the result of, of an impact. And the immune system in these infants is not developed to a point to be ready for being outside the womb. And therefore, the immune responses are rather skewed to a specific type of immunity, which is type 2 immunity, to be able to thrive in an environment where they are protected by, by mom. And now suddenly, from one minute to the other, they are exposed to a lot of impacts, if, even if it's just breathing normal air. Therefore, there is a huge area of unmet need and understanding as well what drives these diseases, what is lacking, and how can we support the immune system along with other important factors like physiological things that can be amended, what the clinicians already do. So I take it that alongside blood, you must also be taking a look at what's in those babies' nappies as well. That, that would be less invasive? Yes, yeah. So we, um, you can take stool samples. And this obviously has to then also done at a certain process because then that stool can be cross-contaminated with exogenous bacteria. And a very important aspect is that the stool samples have to be frozen immediately because the bacteria that are of importance are usually in an oxygen-free environment in the intestine. So therefore, when as soon as they're out, they have to be basically collected as quick as possible and put in an oxygen-free environment so that they don't die off. So yes, we, we do that as well. So we collect stool samples. So we do that oh, too. It's very complicated. <laughs> it's very, yes. uh, as a result of this research, Claudia, you have discovered possibly a gene or a, a protein that the human immune system can use that, that might be effective in preventing net. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you talk about interleukin-37 and this is a protein function that we discovered already like a long time ago, 11 years ago. And this is a, a protein that every one of us has in its body. It's an anti-inflammatory protein, and it's quite useful to have because it keeps the immune system in check or in balance. And only recently we have heard what happens if a virus, for example, drives your immune system crazy and out of balance. It's not good for you. So there's always an importance as well of an inflammatory reaction because that is when the, your body tells you something is wrong. But then at the other side, it also have, has to respond and then co go back to a point where, where it is in, in check again. So this particular cytokine or protein, interleukin-37, does that a bit. And it's induced by multiple different pro-inflammatory assaults. 
or incidences. And then it's also broad acting and broad acting inhibitor of di different immune pathways. And therefore, it's quite interesting to investigate such bodies' own, say, immune checkpoints in diseases that are so multifactorial or that can be caused by so many different things, as, for example, necrotizing enterocolitis is. So what we do is we investigated one of those own checkpoint um, proteins of the body. And what we, can, what we found is that it is actually reduced in necrotizing enterocolitis or not availed in, available in sufficient amounts. And the idea is to then basically substitute it during the disease or before just to maybe prevent or reduce the disease. Yeah, outcome. so there's a synthetic version of interleukin-37 that you can use if the baby's not making it themselves. Yes, there is. It's still in a preclinical development at this stage and because these things um, obviously take quite long. But um, there is the opportunity in the future or in the near future. So it has reached already end stages of uh, preclinical development. Yeah, we hope to take the next steps yeah, soon. Is it possible then that babies that get neck might be a genetic predetermination or that they are just low on IL-37 in the first yeah. place? Yes, that, that can be the, the case. And we have seen that, for example, their immune cells make less of the, of the target during the disease. But we have not done genetic, full genetic sequencing. But uh, the speculation is there that that could be possible. And there is also research publications out there that show if in particular diseases, that if the patient has a mutation or has less R37, that they can be more prone to particular immune diseases off the gut, so like uh, Crohn's and colitis oh, okay. in adults, yeah. But do you get an instinct as a pediatrician of which babies might be likely to have neck? Do you feel that there's some babies are more susceptible? Yes, we know a few risk factors. For example, if a baby is born not only prematurely, but again, too small for its gestational age, that's a major risk factor. So we call that growth restriction. And then babies who have a stormy course with lots of compromise of their lung function and cardiac functions or the heart function, they are also at higher risk to developing neck. The, the big problem with neck is that it's really hard to pinpoint when it first develops. The first symptoms, uh, it's a little bit actually, you can think of it like with, with COVID, right? So, you know, you have a bit of a, a snuffly nose and you have a bit of a cough. Now, these days you probably should still, even though we have finally achieved almost to get rid of the virus, you still should get tested for COVID because you've got these symptoms that may be COVID, but probably aren't, right? And it's a little bit similar with neck in babies. So you look at the babies and they show symptoms that could be neck, usually aren't, but we still, because neck, when it actually happens and becomes severe is so dangerous, we have to be very, very careful and act as if the baby had neck. Yes, because it's, you want to catch it as early as possible. Exactly, yeah. yes. Claudia, so when you are researching neck in these babies, you, you also mentioned that it could potentially cause problems for babies later on in life with other inflammatory bowel diseases 
they like Crohn's. Well, there is a link that, well, these, these children, depending on if they have to undergo surgery, because then it means that large or small amount of intestine has to be removed and that already can cause issues by itself. What I meant is that the target, R37, is also involved or has been shown to play, play a major role in adults with uh, colitis or Crohn's. So Marcel is probably the better person to comment that these babies um, are to a certain percentage um, at risk to develop Crohn's later in life. But what we do know is that they have developmental outcome can be reduced and they can potentially have other immune side effects. Marcel, do you want to comment if there's a correlation between neck and colitis? Yeah, look, this is a, a hard question to, to answer directly. Because actually, as you've pointed out yourself, um, the therapy has improved quite a lot over the past sort of 40 years or actually 60 years since we've even started looking after preterm babies at all. And we can't really compare the babies who were premature babies in the sort of 1980s and 70s to the babies who are born now. So the babies who are looked after in what we would consider the standard of care today the, the oldest ones of these are only in their 20s. And this is not an age where you would develop um, these diseases typically just yet. And that would be a bit later. So it's, it's not easy to answer that question directly. But what I can say is that in the babies who have had surgical neck, as in babies who needed an operation for it, many of them do have quite substantial com compromise in their quality of life later on. For example, through what's called a short gut syndrome. And those are the babies who had who had to have um, substantial parts of their gut removed because they were dead, yet survived these operations and made it out of NICU. These patients then often uh, need infusions um, because their gut cannot um, supply all the nutrition that they need to grow. And these infusions, nutritional fluids, have lots of side effects in themselves, and they may then later need things like liver transplants and so on. So it's, it's definitely a condition that can have substantial later life consequences. Even, and I mentioned the surgical babies, even in the non-surgical babies, there are some correlations. Interestingly, with compromises in neurodevelopment, and what I mean by that is, for example, in functioning of everyday life things like performing in school and so on. That is really difficult. Can you give us an idea of if Claudia's research comes to fruition and you do have access to this protein that the human body naturally makes, if you had access to that and it was able to prevent neck as a paediatrician, how would that make your work? It would be fantastic if we had a drug that was able to either uh, ameliorate neck or even prevent it because then that would change our approach into you know how we look at neonates that have a bit of a big tummy yeah. <laughs> that would change it substantially if we could prevent it but that is still a way away we have to disclaim any new therapies have to undergo very very tight scrutiny for very good reasons and that's again the same pulling again an analogy with COVID here it was incredible how fast we're getting uh, access to the vaccines now. This would be about five times faster at least 
compared to any normal medication that wants to come onto the market. Unfortunately, it is a little while away. I'd just like to quickly point out that it was not only IL-37 that we found as a potential new treatment. And in fact, we looked at, in this, in this study, we looked at all sorts of immune pathways and found some to be increased and likely to play a role, to be one of the culprits, perpetrator, perpetrators of this inflammation. So we should be able to block those as well. And Claudia, do you want to maybe talk about some of those targets? Yeah, so I think what is of importance there is that you have to try to understand the disease as, as much as possible. And um, in particular, since the immune system of, of a preterm is is not as well understood yet and there are still a lot of open questions and if you discover new pathways that are involved in a disease and that also can point out to existing medications that are available on the market already for other diseases and that opens the door to reposition or re repurpose current existing drugs and that is in some ways it can be easier because there's already a lot of data available and safety information and then it can become a second indication as this has been done in the in the past for for others but understanding the disease and, and characterize new pathways that are involved that opens also new doors basically Tell me about what the next few years is going to hold for you, Claudia, when you take a look at IL-37 and potentially how it might work. You have to take the, the target and then you, you stabilize it to, to, because when you find a protein, it doesn't mean that it is a drug because you have to, for example, make it stable that it is, um, you can put it in a little flask on a shelf in a pharmacy, for example, or it has to have a, spe a specific pH in a solution. So all these things have to be developed. And then you do a phase zero or a phase one trial with a few patients. And then, so these are the, the next steps that, that you, that we are planning and are considering. And then you do also more preclinical testing. So you can do that in three-dimensional structures in, of the intestine, of the human intestine. And yeah, so this is all planned for the next few years. Just to add to that, in terms of our research on necrotizing enterocolitis, we would definitely continue working on interleukin-37 in that setting. But we'll also look at some of the other targets that Claudia mentioned. So other immune mediators that we saw changed and that we will now try to block and see if we can do something similar as we've done with IL-37, as in to make neck less severe. When the babies get surgery, there are the tissue goes to pathology for clinical analysis to guide the uh, medication and the clinicians. And then sometimes there are, you can call it leftovers that usually are discarded. And we do have collaborations where we have generated these little guts and we can then now do all that with a mini, mini gut in, in cell culture. How amazing. People will be listening to this who've maybe had premature babies or are worried about their next baby being premature. So I just want to sort of kind of give a, an idea of, you know, how the, the research will be, how the motion of getting to actually having something that you can give a baby. We've seen what can be done if you can throw billions and billions of dollars at a solution. But I guess neck is one of those diseases that profoundly affects the people, the families that it affects and might not be well known in the wider population. Can you give us an idea or talk us through the steps of how long it might take before you can solve this devastating disease, even though it doesn't affect everybody like COVID? You're touching on an issue that we have in general with our patient group 
Because, you know, if you look at it from a society perspective, preterm babies are not actually, you know, a very big group. In fact, they're a rather small group. Of course, one of the questions that we always get when we write research grants is, yeah, well, this actually doesn't really affect so many people. So how do you justify us putting so many resources into this? One thing to take into account is that, yes, while we don't have that many preterm babies and neck is not that common a condition, it is extremely expensive and especially its consequences are extremely expensive to treat. This is partially due to the fact that, you know, if a baby is born ex extremely prematurely, they stay in a NICU or an intensive care unit for several months, sometimes half a year or even longer. So that, of course, is a massive cost that arises from this. And then if complications such as neck occur, they prolong the stay and they force us to use even more expensive interventions. So these, these diseases are incredibly expensive to treat, even though they don't occur very commonly. And then there is also the psychological impact and the society impact, if you will. The families need to justifiably want to be with their babies, at least one parent usually for extended periods of time, so they fall out of the workforce. There's lots of tag-on effects and follow-on effects from these diseases. Professor Marcel Nold and Acting Professor Claudia Nold, both at the Hudson Institute of Medical Research. And fingers crossed for further funding for this research, with neck being just devastating for the babies it affects. Here on Baby Talk, we do cover all sorts of topics to do with babies. Last week, we talked about why you really need to work hard with your ex to achieve an amicable custody agreement, a good divorce, and why doing anything else is likely to cost you big time, financially and emotionally, as divorce lawyer Tracy McMillan told us. Family law is known in the legal field as the hardest area of law emotionally to deal with because you're fighting over the two most important things in people's lives, which is their family or kids and anything they've ever worked hard to achieve. Yeah, it's very emotional and there is a lot at stake. If you are making decisions based on your emotion of insecurity or jealousy or rejection, that's when it actually the only person in affects and hurts is actually the child. That interview, as well as this one, is available as a podcast on the Baby Talk website. It's also on Apple Podcasts. It's on the ABC Listen app as well. You can listen to any of our podcasts and why not tell a friend about them if you think they need to find out more about what it means to be a parent these days. I'm Penny Johnston. I'll see you next time on Baby Talk. ABC Baby Talk is a weekly podcast on ABC Radio, wherever you get your podcasts and on the ABC Listen app. Like us on Facebook to find out as soon as a new episode is ready. Just search for ABC Baby Talk. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.